Context is everything. Words that seem ordinary in the right context can become powerful words. What Jesus said was, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. This is how all the world will know that you belong to me. That you love one another. He said it three times in the New Revised Standard Version. Love one another. I have been meditating on this since the beginning of January. I still don't have this down. This, I think, is the core of everything about our faith. Words mean something, but then when you put them in the right context, they explode. So I want to talk for a moment about the, what these words say, and then I want to drop them in the context of John chapter 13, and you'll see them just explode. What Jesus said is that he was giving us a new command, that we should love one another. This is not new. This is as old as Leviticus chapter 19, where we are told to love our neighbor, and we are even told who our neighbor is. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we are told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is nothing new, nothing at all. What's new is that Jesus moves love to the center of the Christian ethic. Let me say that differently. Love is the centerpiece of a disciple's life. Jesus said, if you love well, you've done everything in the law and in the prophets. He said, the first commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second was like unto the first, love your neighbor as yourself. They aren't one and two. They're one and one. They're side by side. Paul picked up on this, and he said in Galatians that the entire Old Testament law could be summed up in a single phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans chapter 13, he said all of the Ten Commandments hang on a single phrase. Love one another. Do you hear it? John said, if we love one another, we are children of God. He went on to say, if a person does not love another person, he is not a child of God. Whoever loves another, said John, lives in God and God lives in him. Why this is striking 
It's because when I read it and I, I, I just meditated on it, it occurred to me that I have gotten better at so many other things in religion, but I have not gotten better at this. And yet, all of religion hangs on our capacity to love one another. Say that in slow motion. It does not matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter how many books we read. Tozer said, I desire to see the effect of them. I want to hear the titles. Show me the outcome of this stuff that we study and read. So I've gotten better at worship. I've gotten better at deep thoughts. I've gotten better at theology. I've gotten better at discernment. I've gotten better at obedience. But I've not gotten better at love. I'm not saying theology isn't important. It's vastly important. I'm just saying my Christian life is never better than my capacity to love. Never. Never. I just think that it is. He's still there. So that is the first thing. Love is the center of everything God is trying to do in my life. When I get better at that, I get better at Christianity at the same time. Second is that this is not just any ordinary love. He said, just as I have loved you, you should love one another. Every religion in the world will tell you to love, but they won't all tell you to love like he loved us. And the way that he loved us, people, <laughs> is like the love of a mother. She loves you just because you showed up one day. That's it. You didn't do anything. You just were. She loved you not because you thought she, she thought you were going to be something. No, you're going to be something because she loved you. She didn't recognize value in you. You had none. She created it when she loved you. And so when she loved you, she wasn't sharing herself with you. She was identifying with you so that what happens to you happens to her. And when you start loving people like that, you're touching the central nerve of the Christian religion. So I go reading in the New Testament, Old Testament too, by the way, to find out who Jesus loves. 
Because if you listen to people today, they will say, Jesus is a great moral teacher. He's a religious leader who teaches his people to love. And everybody knows this. But what nobody tells you is who he tells you to love. That's just as important. Anyone can love a lot of people, but not everyone can love these people. And so I found in the Bible three classes of people that are hard to love. And Jesus teaches us how to love every one of them. The first class are the least. These are those that are on the margins. They're cut off. They're poor. They're impoverished. Life has beaten them up. In Matthew 25, it's the person who is hungry and thirsty. They're in prison. They're sick. That's the person. They've been pushed out of the center by society. These people are hard to love because they can be so demanding. I pull into Circle K just about a month or two ago. It's 5.30 in the morning. And this lady pulls up about a minute after I pull in. And, I, and, 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 and she jumps out of the car. She runs over and raps on my window. And she yells through the window before I can roll it down, do you have a dollar? Do you have a dollar? So I rolled it down and I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I have a dollar and I reached in my wallet to get it and I pulled my wallet out. And as I opened my wallet, she went, well, make that five. You have five dollars. <laughs> so I said, uh, yeah, I have five dollars. I'm a little surprised that the bidding just went up so fast. I said, yeah, I, I, I actually do have five, I do have five dollars. And she said, well, then she looks in and goes, well, while you're at it, do you have 20? Do you have 20 dollars? So now she went from one dollar to five dollars to 20 dollars. I said, ma'am, I never carry 20 dollars, man. I just don't have any money. But I do have a, I do have a one. I might have a five. So I handed her what I had and she just went, ah, and walked away. <laughs> and I just thought, wow. People are hard to love because when you're, you turn every relationship into a potential donor. It's why you have friends so you can get something from them. And they know it. So people in this category are hard to love because they're so demanding. And there's so many of them. And Jesus says, this is how people will know that you belong to me, when you can love even them. And remember, Steve, love is patient. Love is kind. <laughs> love is not rude. It is not boastful. It is not proud. It does not delight in a scandal or in evil. It rejoices when the truth wins out. Steve, remember, love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And if you grew up in church like I did, you're at this point in the message, say, I know that, I know that. You do not know that. You know the words. You know the words. Dude, I know the words. But I am not good enough at that. 
The second person that is hard to love is the alien. It's the person who's not like you. It's either another ethnicity, it's another culture, it's another tribe, it's another value system, it's another set of beliefs. It's someone whose ideas and way of life is different from your way of life. And our tendency is to reduce a person to these things. So if someone in the room has strong ideas, they become to us nothing more than the sum of their ideas. We sometimes cannot see that there is a person inside of those ideas. So we find it hard to love them. They are hard to love because we're afraid. We're afraid that by opening ourselves up, we will either compromise or we'll dilute our identity. One of the reasons that we do immigrant connection in our church is because we're trying to find practical ways of expressing love to people who come from different backgrounds in life. It isn't cool or trendy. It's just a practical way of saying this is something we think Jesus would do because these are the kinds of people Jesus loves. And when we love them, that signifies that we belong to Jesus, not some other religion. The third, and I think the hardest person to love. I really think these appear almost in, in steps. It's it's pretty easy to love those who are least. It's almost popular today in America because we're so high on compassion. So that one we got down. But the second one, loving people not like us, it's taking us a while, but we're getting better at that. But at the top of this thing is the third category, which are adversaries. These are people that are opposed to us people that don't like us, people that attack us, they disappoint us, they hurt us, sabotage us, deceive us, take cuts in line, which leads us to the context. The context in which Jesus said these words. In John chapter 13, the story begins when Jesus takes off his robe and he puts the towel around his arm and he gets down and he starts to wash the feet of all 12 disciples. He says to us, do you know what I am doing for you? And we say, yeah, yeah, you're washing my feet. No, do you know what I am showing you, another kind of love. It is a love that stoops, that disrobes itself of authority. It empowers someone who is less than oneself. It acts a slave to someone who should be the slave. Do you know what I am doing for you? When the meal is over, or when the washing is over, Jesus then begins to serve them a meal. If we have the story right, they are seated, not really seated, 
leaning. John uses the word reclining. Um, some believe there was something of a triclinium, it was called. These were low-to-the-ground sofa-like fixtures in which a person could lean on their left elbow and reach with their hand and eat with their right hand. So they're seated around three sides of the table, we think, and Jesus is somewhere near the center. If the disciples are sitting in the way that early custom believed, they sat according to proximity or closeness to Jesus. That is to say, the ones who were closest to him were the ones who knew him the most, were the ones he was closest to. So seating at the table was a big deal. It wasn't eating at Hodgson or Baldwin. There was an order to this. So in Luke chapter 22, while they're sitting at the table, the disciples start an argument about which one of them is the greatest. It becomes an argument at the table because it becomes pretty obvious all at once who the most important people are. Why him? Why is he there? Why am I not there? You can hear the bantering going on. Wherever John is seated, the one that Jesus loves, he calls himself, he must be close enough so that when he whispers something to Jesus, he leans against him, because that's what the text says. When John leaned back into Jesus, he then asked him the question, Lord, who is it? So wherever John is seated, he's in pretty close proximity. Wherever Judas is seated, he is close enough to Jesus so that when he dips the bread, he can reach him. Because the text says he dipped the bread and then he reached over and handed the bread to Judas. So wherever he was, close enough for that. Some believe, though we can't prove, that John was on one side and Judas was on the other. Now, ain't that just the way it is? Wherever your friends are, your enemies are also. And if you're like me, you love to eat with your friends, but you don't have too many meals with your enemies. You try to keep your enemies out of your life, not knowing that when you do this, you're missing a full half of your life because your enemies are flat always in your life. And here's the deal. If you should ever succeed in kicking them out of your life, another worse one would take their place. They are always there. You've just learned to ignore them because you can't change them. Jesus makes the radical announcement, one of you is going to betray me. Peter looks over at John and goes, John leans in and says, Lord, who is it? Jesus said, it's the one who I'm going to hand this bread to after I dip it in the in the bowl. This is a Passover meal. Some believe, we can't prove it, that this was the bowl of bitter herbs, part of the Passover. Dips it in the bitter herbs and then hands it over to Judas. Judas takes the bread and when he puts it in his mouth, 
It's the devil that enters him. John's the only one tells us this. When he took the bread, the devil entered into him and he stood up and he scampered off. That's when Jesus drops the statement, a new command I give you. That you love one another as I have loved you. This is how all of those other religions in the world will know that you are peculiar. It is not by your theology. It is not by your belief system. It's not what you can prove. It's by your love. Peter jumps in. Surprise, surprise. He goes, Lord, where are you going? Because I'll go with you. I'll go with you even to death. Jesus says, really? You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows once. You're telling me you're going to die for me? No, actually, I'm going to die for you. Let the record show that it is in between Judas and Peter that Jesus says, this is how we know you are my disciple. You love people. See, it's easy to say that in Sunday school and it's easy to say it in sermons. But it is hard to say it when a betrayer is on one side and someone who hurts you is on the other side. That is where it is hard. That's where you distinguish the power of our religion. Nothing in the world teaches us how to do this. Nothing. So we might just want to start by saying, Lord... I do not know how to do this. Every song I listen to, every movie I watch, every post on Facebook, every leader in Washington models another kind of power. It's a power that says when someone opposes you, you beat them. That's how you establish peace. You beat them and they know never to mess with you again. And then Jesus stands up and says, no, no, here is a better way. Love them. Man, I read this and I said, man, I don't even believe you because nothing in my world affirms that. Nothing that I see or know affirms that you are right. I don't think you're right. You say, you're a preacher. I think the best place to start for some of us is to start right there. Don't give the good Sunday school answer and say, yeah, we should all do that. And I admire the three who can pull it off. Rather, it is better to say, this is the normal Christian life. 
and I don't even believe it. I sure don't like it. Then I got to a place where I said, part of being a disciple is not just believing in Jesus, it's actually believing Jesus. And what he said was, forgive and love your enemies. He must be right. He must be right. There must be a secret and a power in this that I do not know. And maybe that's where some of you can start this morning as well. You can say, even if you're right, Jesus, I sure don't know how to do it. Because every time I love somebody, they just get more power. And the situation gets worse. But that is what he's calling us to do. Here's what I'd like you to do this morning. I would like you to identify the people in your life that are either a Judas or a Peter. These are people that have either betrayed you, hurt you, offended you, gave you bad reviews, said negative, hard things about you on social media, people that you're angry with, and maybe what some of you have done is just to say, they're just not going to be part of my life. So you just try to push them out. And you stay in the same social circles you've been in all your life, people that agree with you. And, and, and what I'm asking you to do is to call forth the names of people that are really hard for you to live with, people that have hurt you, people that owe you an apology. <laughs> or find someone in your life that have hurt you. If Judas is malicious, Peter's just weak. He's not there when I needed him to be. He doesn't know who his friends are. I'm disappointed. Everywhere I go, he's with me, and now he doesn't know who I am. Really? Is there someone in your life that fits that role? Can you find them? Now would you bow your heads? In a moment, we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And when we pray it, we're going to mean it. We're going to say it with the names of these people in the foreground of our minds. What I'm calling you to do this morning is to love as Jesus loved. You say, what does that mean? Love is patient and it's kind. It's not boastful or loud or arrogant. It doesn't put people down. It hardly notices when others do it wrong. It always protects them. It hopes for them. It trusts them. And it always perseveres. So I'm asking you to move toward that person, not away from them. I'm asking you to pray for them, not against them. I'm asking you to serve them, wash their feet, empower them, and not to resist them. Take a moment, call them forward, and begin to pray, Jesus, teach me how to love this person.